Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, this is John Ridley. Welcome to Doc Talk. Uh, my partner, Matt Carey, he's away this week. So <laughs> it's just me. So I feel like I'm, I'm going to lose about 75% of the audience right there. Um, but please don't go because I have a show today. I'm, I'm very excited for our guest. Um, I, if anybody who listens to this podcast, obviously I love documentaries. I really enjoy them. And one of the things I really enjoy about documentaries is not only do I learn things, but I find or am exposed to people who are interesting themselves. And not only are they interesting, but really find ways to then go and tell these stories that are very interesting to them. Um, a few years back, I was working with uh, a producer, Jean-Marie Condon, who's a really amazing individual. Um, she actually did pretty much everything on Let It Fall, a documentary that I did. And she sent me a link and she said, oh, there, I have the stock. You got to watch it. It's really interesting. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm sure it's really interesting. It was phenomenal. And in some ways, a little, I don't want to say timeless the way, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is timeless, but it's timeless and timely in the sense that a lot of what it dealt with then is unfortunately incredibly important now. It's a real pleasure to have on the show today the director of Speed Sisters and some other documentaries that we're going to talk about as well, Amber Ferris. Amber, welcome to the show. Forgive me for that overly long introduction, but... <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me. Well, Speed Sisters, I, I, I want to say was as though somehow like a bottle of wine, it, it didn't quite ripen. It was, it is a really, really terrific film. I only say was because I actually saw it many years ago. There was yeah. the pandemic, there was all of that. And now I actually have a space where I can talk to people about documentaries. I want to talk about Speed Sisters. I want to talk about some of the other work you, you did. But I do want to talk about you as well, because I meant what I said. One of the things I appreciate about documentaries and documentarians is that they, you know, they tend to be self-starters. They, they certainly don't go into it because they think, you know, there's billions of dollars on the other end of it. There's stories and there are things that challenge them. You went to school for marketing. Um, I'm assuming that you were kind of down that road, down that path. Like a lot of people, 9-11 um, really changed things for you as well. Talk about that and talk about what changed, uh, where you were at the time, um, your nationality or your nationalities, your shared experience. And, and because a lot of times we think about um, issues, well, we're American and we have complications. You, you know, the world, unfortunately, is complicated. But more importantly, that change in how you became a documentary storyteller. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm Canadian. So that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so not don't have the world on my shoulders as the Americans do, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we put the monkeys on our back. That's a lot. We, a lot we can learn from a place like Canada. A lot. Uh, well, yeah. Um, yeah. So I I grew up in Canada. My um, my parents were both born in Canada, but my grandparents, all four of them, came 
from Lebanon um, and, and immigrated to Canada at the turn of the century. So I grew up being, you know, my identity was primarily Canadian. And then we had this sort of Lebanese on the side. I always say that we like played a lot of hockey and ate a lot of hummus. So sort of how <laughs> our, our upbringing was. <laughs> and, and yeah, and so I hadn't really, like the Middle East was just sort of something that was, it was very distant to me. Uh, you know, we did have a lot of customs and stuff within our our, our household and, you know, with our, our relatives and stuff, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I really thought about until 9-11. And then we started to get, you know, my parents got phone calls asking them or telling them to go back to where they came from and had like Canadian police investigating terrorist threats and all of this like crazy stuff, which was for me just blew my mind because, you know, Canada was really the only country that I that I knew. And it all of a sudden to be associated with a place that didn't really know that much about um, it sort of set me off on this a little bit of a journey where I uh, I first went to to Lebanon in 2002 and sort of bought a you know a used ca- like not even a film camera or like just a Nikon point and shoot camera a film and I had actually funny enough I had seen a film let me back up for a second I had seen a film called Children of Shatila by a really amazing Palestinian filmmaker named May Masri and the film was about um, Palestinian refugees in Lebanon who that were part of this like sort of youth group kind of thing and they took a group of them down to the border in the, in the south where they they got to meet their relatives through this wall you know they hadn't seen each other and and the film just like really impacted me in a lot of ways one was i had you know i did go to lebanon once in the in the 90s and i when i was there like there was this not even a mention of Palestinians or Palestinian refugees. And so like, it was something that I intellectually knew, but I didn't really understand, you know, what that, what that meant. And so that film really inspired me. And at the time I had just been laid off of a, uh, I was working for an ad agency that lost some business and I lost my job and I just went, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to contact this organization and go to Lebanon. And so I did. And I, I started to work with like, sort of Palestinian refugees in a in a community that was very close to the community where my family is originally from in Lebanon and start taking pictures. It's just started documenting, you know, what I what I what I saw, taught myself how to take photos and 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 just really immerse myself in that sort of issue and community. It was really and and also just start to learn Arabic a little bit and just like reconnect with sort of distant relatives that we have there. And and it was just this really amazing experience. Did did you feel like you were Going through because you're you're really going through a transformation. You talk about in an interview just starting with with feeling no longer like a, a Canadian, but like a, a, a Lebanese individual in Canada. Then going back to to Lebanon, then picking up a camera. You know that that's a lot of of change. And and you talk about losing your job. You know a lot of people, yeah. and I would understand. You know, you crawl under the covers, and what am I going to do tomorrow? Did you feel the change happening? Was it one of those things where it needed to happen? Did you even recognize it, or do you look back and go, "Okay, I'm doing all these things that just got me to where I I don't want to say you need to be. I don't know you that well, but I see the work that you're doing, and I certainly feel like the work is necessary." Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, that's a really good question. You know, at the time, there was all these protests that were happening in across the world against the Iraqi war. And uh, at the time in in Canada, I had met I had met some Palestinians that were living there, and I started going to these protests. I had met them at the protests, and then a, a friend of mine 
um, who had made documentaries like in Vancouver was like, let's make a documentary about you, about your process, about like what's happening. And, and it, we were like, great. And so we started to kind of film and we pitched it and it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, well, that's the first I was lesson. A, I was like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't interesting enough <laughs> to hold that film, I guess. Um, but it did oh, get oh, me but look, thinking. But look at you now. Look yeah. You now. <laughs> but it got me thinking about, it did get me thinking about storytelling for sure. And I think that I remember back then, like talking to like, like our friends about like, we need to, we need to be telling these stories. Like we need to be telling, even if it's just about like our community in Canada, because like, we just never see ourselves on on TV. And when we do, like, I mean, I remember seeing that transition of, like, terrorists on TV that went from being, like, Russian names to, like, my brother's names. You know, like, mm. we, it was like, what? Like, you know, Libya and, like, all of this stuff was sort of just kind of coming at us in, in this way that I don't think that we were really, um, that we were really prepared for. And I think, too, for, for people like me that had been predominantly Canadian, it kind of sideswiped us. Like we weren't just weren't yeah. used to like talking about, about ourselves in that sort of politicized way. And yeah, like I remember the first time somebody asked me if I was, asked me like, you know, I got like a lot where I came from. I was like, you know, from mm, Brown yeah. Prairie, Alberta. I'm from, where are your parents <laughs> from? They're from Southern Saskatchewan. You know, there's where are your grandparents, you know, it always like, yeah, when I'd say ask, Lebanon, keep digging. Keep digging. digging, yeah. And then they'd be like, are you Muslim or Christian? And I'd be like, Oh, well, you know, my I guess my family was originally Muslim, and they'd be like Sunni or Shia, and I was like, "Damn, I had to call my mom." Just are we Sunni or Shia? Like I, I, you know, like it just wasn't a huge part of our upbringing. And so I think, I think that yeah, there was a transformation that I, I feel like was happening definitely, where I was starting to feel like. I was having to defend this place that I didn't know. I was not, not even defend it, just sort of like justify my own being, really. And 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 started to meet other Arabs that weren't from Canada that weren't like, you know, part of my cousins and people that were like that were like me that were mostly Canadian, like meeting this group of friends. They were Palestinian. They had all grown up in like Kuwait or Saudi. Yeah. And so that and and they were all creative too. They were musicians and artists and stuff like that. They were really amazing. And so it just sort of took me into this uh, different world. And, and, and yeah, and I think while I was, I mean, I think most people would say this is like, I never feel Canadian enough in Canada. I never feel Lebanese or Arab enough when I'm in the Middle East. Cause you know, mm. I don't speak the language. I don't have, I don't share the same culture in in a lot of, a lot of ways. So, and, and I think that's made me like a better filmmaker is having that sort of inside outside sort of view um, it's it's definitely helped me like build relationships when I'm telling stories over there. You know, people see me as be Arab, but I'm outside. But um, anyways, yeah, it it was definitely a, a bit of a transfer. I think I knew that I was going through a bit of a transformation at that time. Well, you talk about communities. You talk about other communities in Canada, or you talk about um, you feeling not Canadian enough when you're in Canada, not Arab enough when you're in the Arab world, or exploding stereotypes, whether they're your own or, or how you feel about groups i i what i loved about speed sisters is that it does so many things so well simultaneously and it one it just tells the story of ladies ladies who happen to be race car drivers ladies who are having a, a good time ladies who are there for each other who have their own personalities you say at one point that they're all big personalities and they they are but it's also you know certainly before any of us or anyone like myself was really paying attention to the occupied territories. 
It's about dealing with life being oppressed. And there's a moment in Speed Sisters, and I want to talk about the film because I'm talking about it and people aren't aware. But again, it's about um, four drivers, and I believe their manager, all female. Um, the first, this is redundant, first and only, but maybe only, all-female racing team. Now, they have to race um, short tracks, or they're kind of like, if people know, horse barrel racing. It's kind of like that, which Jean Marie pointed out to me. Um, it kind of has to be like this, because you have to remember, in Palestine, it's not like they got a lot of room. So it's not like they can just have tons of tracks. So constantly in this film, uh, and this is what I wanted to get to, there's someone who says, uh, because you're reminded of the oppression, you're reminded of the checkpoints you have to go to, you're reminded of, you're not just reminded, you, you, you're living with people who are living under oppression. That That's a reality. And someone says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but when you live under oppression, all you can do is endure. And there's so many moments where people are enduring, not even enduring, like, oh, this is the best I can do. They're thriving, they're living, they're enjoying, they're loving. And what I loved about the film is that you know, I sit around and I like to think I'm as progressive and open-minded as anyone else. But you're like, oh, I never would have expected that Arab women would have been doing this or that not all Arab women are dressed like that. And there's much we can talk about. But what I love about it, again, for someone who's like open-minded, no, you don't, you being me, you have no idea. So before I can even take a side or talk about anything, I have no idea, and a film like yours gives me and gives us an amazing idea of just life and start with that and build out. Not really a question there, but just really a praise for what Speed Sisters is all about. Yeah, thank you. That was, I mean, you know, that's the thing. I think that when people think of the Middle East, they often think of this sort of, ah, this really conservative sort of Saudi-produced Arabness, <laughs> right? Where everyone's covered and, and, and the women are oppressed and that. And, that there's yeah. like, and, you know, my experience in traveling in Palestine and Lebanon and Syria and in Jordan and Egypt and in those countries and even in, in the Gulf as well, but like more in the Levant, which is where I've spent most of my time. It's like, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not issues with like, there's not right. gendered issues or a hundred percent is, but, you know, it's not necessarily the ones that the world thinks there are and and women driving women politicians women yeah. teachers women doctors women like women hold those positions in all of these societies and are and in its like just these simple things seem to to blow people away I, I i was a cinematographer on another film called the judge which was about the first woman uh judge to be appointed to a sharia court of law that also happened in palestine yeah i was i seen this year uh the documentary before daughters which took place in tunisia and even before yeah the Arab Spring in Tunisia, something like 24% of whatever their, their parliament is, is called or their body of government were, were like female. So again, I'm saying for, for me, for a guy who likes, who likes to think I know things, the, the things you don't know are really, really um, amazing. And one of the things that was interesting about Speed Sisters is because there is sort of a, a degree superficially where you go, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a film that's designed for dudes. It, it, it's ladies driving fast cars. And, you know, fine, if that gets people in the door. But I, I saw the TED Talk you gave, and you talked about this isn't just about exploding myths about women. And I thought this was really interesting because I didn't even realize this the first time I watched it. This was also about exploding stereotypes about Arab men. Mm -hmm. 
And talk about that, and talk about in particular the father of one of these um, female drivers and his background and a decision that he makes where you go, and I think you say in your talk, you know, that's a great dad anywhere, but when you put it to an area and put it to a world where we only see one kind of Arab man, you know, the, the, the bloodthirsty killer, you know, generally speaking, we generalize too much. There, there are other representations, but they're never enough when there's a, a predominant look, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this helps explode, you know, a stereotype and a very particular stereotype about Arab men. Talk about that. Talk about the, the, the film in general, about how reactions that you got from men that could be surprising to, to again, um, uneducated people like me, but also the, the, the father who is just really remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I think it was one of the things that really struck me, like when we were, you know, like when you make an independent documentary film, like you're constantly pitching and getting feedback and whatnot. And one of the main feedbacks we were always getting was like, there must be more pushback to them. Like the men must just be, they must be, men must really not like what they're doing. And, and you know, we it, one day we just were like, you know what? We haven't come across it. Like I could definitely go out and find it, I'm sure. Right. But the people that were closest to them, the other racers, the like the fathers, you know, no one was like them being able to race wasn't an obstacle. They they were able to race, right? Like the racing, no one was saying to them that they couldn't do it. In fact, the the head of the federation, who seemed like kind of a bit of a baddie in a way, <laughs> you know, he was <laughs> the one that encouraged women to race. He said, "Here's a car. We have this car. Any woman that wants to." to give it a try, come and give it a try. They created a, an environment in which women felt safe to be able to be in that in that space. And I thought that that was like, you know, when, when thinking about it and thinking about the feedback that we were getting about the film, I'm like, this is a surprising thing, is that we're not, this. that's not what they're dealing with, you know? And and Mara's dad, specifically is Khaled, um, he, you know, he grew up in a refugee camp. His family is originally from Haifa and in, I think in, in 48, his father fled to Janine and uh, and he was raised in a refugee camp. And he he later, they moved out, but he, he made like dentures, like fake teeth, yeah. like dentures. Yeah. And he had two, two daughters and three sons. And he, um, and he loved racing and his daughter loved racing and his, his sons did too. They all loved cars. But I um, mean, in fact, his wife was like a driving instructor. And he just saw the joy that his daughter got from racing and and just they sacrificed so much to give her, you know, to buy a car, to 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 give her everything she needed to to race. And and Mara was when we go to the races in Janine, you know, people would just be cheering for her. Like yeah. she was just like this hero. And it and it was just so again, you know, in terms of those those kinds of stereotypes, like it was so counter to to what we would expect to be happening. You know, when you have, like at the time in Saudi Arabia, women weren't able to drive and therefore everyone was like, oh, women in the Middle East can't drive. But you had right. these race car drivers at that time that were being celebrated for, for racing. So we just really realized that it was important. That was like such an important element of, of the film. And I think we're seeing that. I'm like, I don't want to get super political, though you can't talk about Palestine without getting super political. But like, we see that happening in Gaza right now, right? Where it's like the men that are like, with their bare hands, like digging their loved ones out of rubble who are hugging yeah. their children and who are, you know, mm -hmm. and it's so counter to what we expect to see. In the, and, and it's, you know, I, I, I just think in terms of reaction from people, I think one of the I remember this friend of mine saw this film and came up to me after and said, you know, 
I was so moved by Khaled that watching your film made me want to be a, a better father to my daughter. You know, like mm-hmm. I like, and then we had a lot of Palestinian women that were saying, you know, thank you so much. Like this, it reminds me of my relationship with my father. It reminds me of, you know, and I think that when we made the film and, and I was definitely had it in my mind and I had been talking about it for a long time prior to like meeting these uh, race car drivers, these women was wanting to make a film that really was able to speak to a Canadian American audience. Cause that's, you know, where, where I come from, but what I wasn't expecting was that the film really touched people in the Middle East. It touched people in Palestine because of the way it celebrated joy and life. And it it was reflective to how they see their lives being lived in the relationships that they had and, and the fun and the joy, you know, it's like, it's, it's a very joyous culture, but for those that lived outside of Palestine, Arabs that live anywhere else in the middle East can't travel there. They're banned from traveling there. They have to, in order Mm. to get to Palestine, you have to go through an Israeli border in Israel will not let or very it's very hard for people to to travel. So you have Palestinians that are living in the diaspora that have never been to Palestine. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, we saw the streets. Because they also consume Palestine either by the stories of their parents or grandparents or by the news that they're getting. And the news is constantly about about war and oppression. Right. And so for them to see the streets of Ramallah, we got that so many times from people. You showed us what life was like in Ramallah. We got to see the streets. We got to see the streets in Palestine. We have to. So for Arabs that are living, you know, outside, it it provided them with access to a place that they've they've only ever heard about. And um, and I, I think that's what really surprised me and delighted me was just that it got that sort of reception in the in the Middle East. Speaking with Amber Ferris, she is the director of many things, but we're talking about the film right now, Speed Sisters. But I do want to talk about another uh, documentary that you did, because as you mentioned, you know, you, if you could ever talk about the Middle East and politics were not involved, I don't know if that time existed, sadly. It certainly feels that way. And I know, unfortunately, us talking about Palestine, there, there will be people who say, well, you're, you're not telling all the story of the Middle East. I'm one of those people who believe that many things can be true at the same time. Um, so there is oppression and that's wrong and there's slaughter and that's wrong. And when people are lost, that's wrong. I felt that way. There's another documentary you did, and I want to make sure I'm getting the title correct, but it's Reckoning with Laughter. Is that correct? Yeah. That deals with, again, you, you did this before what is going on now, but what is happening now certainly didn't just arrive out of nowhere. Reckoning with Laughter, I thought was incredibly powerful. Um, I just want to talk very quickly, though. You, I believe you did this for The New Yorker, correct? This is a, a short doc that you, that you did? It was originally for Al Jazeera Witness, and then The New Yorker also platformed it. So it's on both uh, places. And I bring that up because, again, we have a, a lot of folks who make documentaries who, who listen to this podcast, and it's just a challenge um, right now in this environment. Documentaries kind of blew up for a minute, and then it became a lot of true crime and celebrity docs and um, one of the things, you know, you've, you have certainly found ways to, you know, making the doc is one thing, but getting them out is another. So with Al Jazeera, um, with the New York, I believe you even did one a very powerful documentary short about uh, a girl's uh, junior soccer team from Afghanistan who is trying to get out of Afghanistan 
as it collapses, incredibly powerful. Again, blowing away these stereotypes, but I appreciate your ability to, you know, find these stories that are, are challenging to get, challenging to say, hey, there's an audience for it, but not giving up and finding a way to tell those stories. But I do want to talk about um, Reckoning with Laughter because this is a story about, you know, we talk about, hey, can, can people acknowledge many truths and the many difficult truths of the Middle East? And Reckoning with Laughter is about an individual, uh, happens to also be female, I believe her name is Noam, Noam uh, Schuster. Yeah, it's Noam Schuster Iliassi. Noam yeah. Schuster. Yeah. She has a, she, she's a comedian. Like she has Noam, a, actually a joke like Noam Cha- about Cha- her Cha- name. Cha- right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of those, uh, she says in one of her routines <laughs> that liberals like me, uh, is some kind of name for a softy liberal like me, I, I would just call her Chomsky because I, I would know it from Noam yeah. Chomsky. But she's very funny. Um, but she was a... a similar to yourself, had a career. I believe she worked at the UN, but she decided that she wanted to, and she's Jewish, but really wanted to bridge the divide between Israelis and the Arabs through comedy. And it's a really fascinating documentary. When, when I, you sent me the link and it said comedian, I just went, oh, uh, who is this guy? So again, just for me, as a, I'm going to admit, I'm a caveman. And to see, oh, it's a female comedian. It's a Jewish female comedian. It's a Jewish female comedian. I believe she says she's from the Persian area or the, the Gulf area. Um, but really trying to bridge communities through laughter. And she talks about one of the audiences she she's most concerned about and performing in from. It's not Arabs, but Israeli audiences because they may not understand, you know, the satire, the humor, or trying to blow up these stereotypes. Talk a little bit about... Noam, and, and where you met her. And also, it's an interesting documentary because it happens prior to the pandemic. But through the pandemic, there's actually this amazing moment where she she goes through a bit of pain but gets this wish of, hey, we're all together through the oddest circumstances that none of us saw coming. Sure. Um, so Reckoning with Laughter is... Yeah, it's about Noam Shuster Eliassi, who is a Israeli uh, comedian who was born in a village that's like between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. That's called mm-hmm. in English, it's called the Oasis of Peace, and it's a village that is like an intentional village where uh, Israelis and Palestinian citizens of Israel live together by choice. And there's a school at this. Um, there's a school at this village where the kids all learn Arabic from kindergarten to grade six or grade seven. Mm -hmm. So Noam grows up. She's, her mom was originally from Iran. Her dad is a son of Holocaust survivors. Her dad was one of the first uh, wave of refuseniks that refused to serve in the Israeli army in the first intifada. So she grew up in this very political... He goes to jail. I don't mean to interrupt, but he goes to jail. Yeah. Because he refuses to, to to serve in an occupied territory. Exactly. That, uh, exactly. Again, and so a story that we don't I would never even known there were a few things. Yeah, yeah. So her so she comes from this, you know, tradition of refusing. She refused to to also serve. Her brother refused to serve, you know. So they 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 came from a family that her mom often says to her that Noam encompasses what it means to be what it, what the Middle East should look like, what it, what Israel should look like. Right? Is somebody that speaks fluent Arabic, that is you know refuses the army, that is culturally sort of we say bilingual. 
So she she kind of embodies, she grew up with Palestinians, her best friend growing up with Palestinians. And, and so she feels comfortable in, in sort of in both societies. But what Noam did is she went away, she went to Brandeis University in, in the U.S., came back to, to Israel and, and worked at the U.N. and worked in, in this program at the U.N. that was talking to sort of the fringe parts of Israeli society to sort of like, if there was ever a peace deal, to how do you bring them in and having those conversations. And that program ended up getting cut from the U.N., so she lost her job. And then from mm-hmm. there, she started telling jokes and ended up doing the satire stuff that was and, and the thing that that's great with Noam is she does her jokes often in Arabic. She does it in Arabic and English and in, in Hebrew. And then at some point, she got a fellowship to, to go to Harvard University for a year. Now, I met Noam when I was living there, when I was making Speed Sisters. Um, so she's somebody that she's a friend of mine. So this is like, I mean, I think they say that all great stories are not all great stories, but a lot of great stories are the ones that are the closest to you. So she came, she was in the States and, you know, we got talking and I was like, oh no, I'm like, let's, maybe let's explore doing a film together. At the time, I thought it would be, she's, has this comedy career and I figured that she'd be playing on university campuses. It was around the time of the election, campuses, as we know, as they are today, are super polarizing and you have this Israeli (laughs) that shows up that is like pro-Palestinian and she just, you know, I was just like, oh, this could be an interesting short documentary and then the pandemic happened and it sort of took a different toll. But the thing with that film is it, it, we did a short around COVID. It's actually a longer film called Coexistence My Ass, which is the name of her one-woman comedy show. And so we've continued to follow her past this film up until today. We're still, we're right now starting our our edit and sort of finishing up production of it. But but at the time Al Jazeera was looking for COVID films and I <laughs> you know I pitched this film and they had never done a film about an Israeli character before. This is Al Jazeera English. Um and so we we made that film. And then it, the interesting like you were saying is part of the film is like so it, the first part is that she's here in the US and realizing, you know, what she says which I think is so important is that when she performs her Palestinian audiences, she's never teaching them any. You don't teach the oppressed. The oppressed knows. With Palestinian audiences, she's creating something special that's happening between them. But where the work is, is with the Jewish audiences in the United States, and then also like heading back to to Israel, which was very hard for her because politics are are different in Israel and people aren't as traditionally open to, to what Noam has to say. And what Noam has to say is, the solution to the Middle East is, you know, is equality for all, like is yeah. is sharing that land. If, and, and if we can't share the land, we can't, no one's going to live in, in peace ever. So that's the feature film sort of continues on after COVID and into the the political cycles that have happened since then. There are a couple of moments in, in the short that, that are around COVID or, or semi-COVID in particular. One, is, one happened during COVID, but one was COVID itself. And, and I want to talk about both of those. One specific to that story, she get she ends up getting COVID. She's like coughing for a minute. She gets COVID. She ends up going. Uh, she has to be hospitalized. It's it's severe enough. She needs to get hospitalized. And then they, you know, as you're going through this quarantine, they they put people who've been infected or they did in a hotel together. And she finds that she's with Israelis and Arabs together, and it's like having this massive snow in, and yeah. nobody's <laughs> caring about faith or gender or where you're coming from or where your parents were from and really having an amazing time. And I really appreciated that. Even I know you're 
you're making this into a larger film. But just that, the sort of irony, you know, there's a moment where she's literally crying. She doesn't want to go back home. She's excited. She just got some comedy gigs. She's going to play at the Kennedy Center. I mean, these are life-changing events for anyone. And suddenly the pandemic comes and she's really torn. And, and as you say, the politics, she doesn't want to go back. And yet it, it's really beautiful. And she has this experience in this moment where people are just vibing together, um, you know, a, a horrible time in, in the history of the world. And yet in, in the worst of the worst, people can find the best of the best in each other. And, and to that also, something else, again, this happened during the pandemic, not pandemic specifically related, but it was the George Floyd murder, the assassination mm-hmm. of George Floyd. And, you know, you, you, you started the conversation, you know, saying you were from Canada and you don't carry as much as, as we do in America. And sometimes I, I don't think we realize how much, you know, sometimes we certainly overreach as Americans, but that what happens here really does reflect to the rest of the world. And George Floyd's assassination, there were so many people, and there's certainly a moment that's so powerful in, in the short version of Reckoning with Laughter, where she's back in, it's, I'm going to mispronounce, but Rabin Square in Israel. Yeah, Rabin Square. Talking about, you know, there's outrage in America over this. We need to understand that, not conflate it with other assassinations. But she talks about a, a young autistic, uh, I believe Palestinian young man just walking to school, I think his special school, mm-hmm. and was shot by IDF forces. And the, you know, a story that we would expect in America, not necessarily there, but realizing all of this, it, it's oppression is oppression. If we're not feeling it, if we're not sharing it, if we're not speaking up about it, when it really gets bad, it's too late. And I just thought that was incredibly powerful, particularly in a space where it's both challenging to talk about it and challenging for a lot of people to hear something where you're not immediately gravitating one side or the other to see a Jewish female comedian standing up and saying, hey, this is not just about Israel. It's not just about America. Oppression everywhere. It's wrong, and we've all got to stand up for it. Again, I don't mean to go on and on, but your films are incredibly powerful. Um, They're subversive in the right ways. You know, they're about comedians. They're about racing. They're about these things, but they're about so much more. And I really appreciate that you have the capacity to go out and make these stories. And I'm just so impressed. You know, and I don't mean impressed like, oh, I'm somebody impressed me. I'm just like impressed, like I'm shamed by... You know what you're choosing to do, but it's really amazing. So then, when do we get to see um, the the this part two of uh, coexist my ass? It's coexistence it my going? ass. Yeah. Coexistence my ass. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah. I just just to speak on on a little bit of what you were talking about about Noam and and especially in that in that hotel, which that what I think was yeah. like so amazing about that. What happened is this was like really early days. Like she had left. It was, she was in that hotel like April 1st, 2020. So it was before anyone had gotten gotten COVID. And when she got into that hotel, what she saw was that when, when people are given equal resources, so everybody, regardless, it was like, it was 
Jerusalemites, like Palestinians that had Jerusalem ID. It, it was um, Palestinian citizens of Israel. It was at West Bank, just to sort of clarify, it was the people from West Bank or Gaza that were in there. Um, yeah. And then there was like religious Jews, there were Druze, there was like sort of this whole Bedouins, like it was just all of these these different people. And they all ate the same food, they all had the same accommodations, they all were sick. And that in, in that sort of scenario is that people were more concerned about about their health, and it gave them an opportunity to kind of get to know each other and to talk in a way that they wouldn't have. And, and to Noam, that was like this idea of true coexistence, because the coexistence that she has experienced throughout her life is a coexistence. It is sort of peace for Israelis and 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 oppression for Palestinians, no matter how you sort of slice it. And that is, for her, that's the my ass, right? Because real true coexistence um, needs to be based on equality. It needs to be mm. based on on equal resources and all of these things. And so that to her was this moment of, you know, a fleeting moment of 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 how things could could possibly be. And then she gets shot out of that <laughs> that hotel. Um and I was also, I have to say, I was really jealous. She was giving like doing comedy shows. She was having yoga yeah. classes, Zumba. And I'm like at home on my computer at four o'clock in the morning talking to like these Palestinian Israeli kids. Like there were like, you know, 20 year olds that I was getting them to shoot with their iPhones, you know, so we were able to make the film. Like, and I was just like living. Yeah, I know. Weirdly. COVID never looked quite as good. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know. I'm like, you're having let way me get too some much of that fun. COVID. I haven't listen, dressed. I haven't gone had a shower in a week, and you know, you're anyways. Yeah. <laughs> to, you're, listen to your point. Um, you know, separate but equal. You know, we 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 have many problems still in America, but there was a concept that separate is equal. You can have separation but equality. You cannot. You know, we are all equal, or or, or yeah. none of us are equal and free. Um, Amber Ferris, I appreciate so much your work and more than anything, taking the time to join us on Doc Talk. Um, it was a long time coming, but I'm really, really glad that we got together and so thankful that Jean Marie introduced me to Speed Sisters. Um, is Speed, can people see Speed Sisters anywhere? Yeah. I, think, I believe I you can get it on iTunes. It's, it's we don't on, even call it's, it iTunes anymore. I'm not even sure it's still on there. It's, it's on Vimeo for sure. Oh, you can look go it up to on Speed. Vimeo. It, yeah, it, you can go to Speed so, Sisters. I want people to go see it. Uh, and, and it's one of the difficult things sometimes about documentaries. You got to seek them out. But please go spe see Speed Sisters. I believe Reckoning with Laughter. You can see that online. I think that's on YouTube. And you yeah. can check that out. Yeah, and, and Coexistence My Ass is going to be coming out hopefully next year. So we're just in the edit right now trying to raise the rest of the money to finish the film. And uh, hopefully it'll be out next year. I'm being told that Speed Sisters is available through Amazon okay. and Apple. So please, please, right. please, and Vimeo, <laughs> but check it out. Uh, Amber Ferris, thank you so much. Deeply Thanks appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me, John. It was lovely. It's a pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you next week on Doc Talk. Doc Talk.